Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Almost Familiar. I'm Elizabeth. I'm here with my good friend Wes, and today we have our first musician on the show, Mr. Bill, who also happens to be my neighbor. Yeah, that's right. He lives in the outer bay of you from where you're at. Is that how it's called? Break down San Fran for me. Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the Sunset neighborhood, and I'm in the outer Sunset, and he is in the inner Sunset. So I'm a little closer to the beach. We're basically just on the western side of the city by the water. That's awesome. How did you guys get connected? So Ill Gates actually connected me with him because I had been in touch with Ill Gates and Mimi Page for that first workshop that I did earlier this summer with Good Night Out, kind of in response to all of the base nectar and space juices allegations. Um, and I'd reached out to Mimi and Ill Gates for promotional support. And their posts actually went a long way in terms of getting additional registrations. And then once I saw that they appeared on the Mr. Bill podcast, I figured they might be interested in doing a follow-up workshop that was more geared towards how musicians can use their power to address sexual harassment in the music industry. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm glad you guys got connected. I'm glad he was able to sit down and talk with us because like, I didn't really know too much who he was as a person until I started listening to his podcast. And I just think he's incredibly insightful and the way he just kind of describes his kind of traveling of the music career was something I thought just be really cool. So I was really glad we sat down to talk to him. So before we dive into this episode, we'd really appreciate if you could uh, give us five stars wherever you listen to the podcast and leave a review. And we'd also love it if you followed us on social media. Yes, please. We're Almost Familiar Pod on Instagram. We're the AF Pod on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook at Almost Familiar. And we'd love to hear from you. So if you want to send us an email, uh, we're Almost Familiar Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, we are. We'd love to hear from you. So without further ado, let's get familiar with this week's guest, Mr. Bill. neighbors that is crazy um when did you move here so yeah i moved to san francisco on january 1st like new year's day basically and then uh i lived in russian hill up until about uh like two months ago and then i just moved here oh nice so i've only yeah i've only been in the sunset for like uh, two months or something yeah are you liking it I do. Yeah. I really like Irving Street. It's just like tons of really good Asian shops and restaurants and lots of good like dumplings and banh mi and pho and like all sorts of good stuff. Where are you living before San Francisco? Uh, I was in Denver, Colorado for the last like five years or something like that. And then before that, I was in Australia, so in Melbourne and then Sydney before that. Now, I imagine, was it the music that brought you out to Denver? Yeah, so it kind of my career just got to the point where I was like flying to America a couple of times a year for like tours and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the kind of the thing with touring is like it's expensive to get over here in the first place, right? Like the flight is a couple of thousand dollars. And then <clears throat> you need to like play a bunch of shows to like just break even basically. And then once you've broken even, it's like you don't want to if you have like a week off or two weeks off or something like that between shows you don't want to like fly back to australia and then back here because then it's like you have to play another few shows to break even again so i was just like staying here and sleeping on people's couches a lot and stuff like that i was like i should just come move here and get us get a spot there you go denver's a good spot to post up 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's cheap. There's a good electronic music scene there. Um, and yeah, it was good for a long time. I, I enjoyed it there. And I still really like Denver. Um, but yeah, I, I moved here for a relationship, which is still happening and going well. So that's cool. And yeah, it was a good move. I really love San Francisco. The more I, Before I moved here, <clears throat> there was like a bunch of people who were telling me like, oh yeah, it's like the sickest city ever. Like you're going to love it. And I was like, uh, I feel like that's just like pretentious San Franciscan <laughs> shit. Like there's tons of good cities in the world. You just probably haven't been to them. Like, you know, I travel a lot. I go to a ton of cities, right? And I, I like shitloads of places but it's almost like san francisco people like look down on every other city and think that this city is like the best one and after living here for a bit i like kind of agree it's like one of the best cities for sure wow yeah i could wax poetic about san francisco for days Uh, like i said i like moved here from the east coast like three years ago and i don't think i ever want to go back i i think they pushed it in the water here i think it's absolutely incredible do you um have you read the book cool gray city of love no but it's on my list it's actually next on my reading list of you I've read the first two chapters, yeah. It's um I'm gonna finish reading it at some point. I just got distracted with some other books, but yeah, it's it's written really well. Yeah, I also love the independent bookstore scene here. I don't know if you've had a chance to explore it since um you kind of moved close to coronavirus, but there's like a bunch of incredible bookstores near you. There's um Green Apple Books on like Yeah, they're on ninth. Yes, on ninth. Yeah. Yeah, I've been to it. Yeah. It's yeah. a good one. I got a chess book there like a couple of weeks ago. Nice. I'm like a big fan of chess. <laughs> oh yeah? Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm curious about your your time in Australia and your exposure to electronic music there. I was reading through one of your old Reddit AMAs and I think you said that you were exposed to like Psytrance culture out in Australia at like doof parties. Is that how you say them? Uh, doof is how you say it. Doof, doof. okay. Yeah. I, so one thing that kind of like blows my mind a little bit is that Psytrance is not popular in America and I wonder like, I just wonder why that is. Um, and, I, you know, you don't really see it intersect with the electronic music scene that, like, you play in and that we're a part of unless it's just, like, more underground and I just haven't, like, come across it yet. But I'm just curious, in your opinion, like, why hasn't Psytrance become as popular in America as other forms of electronic music? So I think the reason why is because America just has, like, so much other music history here. Um, the music history here is, like techno hip-hop um jazz uh all that kind of stuff right so i think all of the history here um just points towards other genres that are more beat driven and more melody driven and stuff like that so you know stuff like uh trap for instance or like you know uh i don't know what else you'd say like maybe uh, to some degree dubstep i mean i guess dubstep was kind of like jamaican to begin with i guess dub and then i guess mm-hmm. uk maybe made a dubstep but um <clears throat> yeah i think it was just it just has to do with the history of, of america's music being rooted in stuff like hip-hop and jazz whereas places like say israel and australia and places uh, like some parts of europe like places where psytrance is big they just don't have this like same history with with music so um i think i don't know why it's big in australia it's like a weird place for it to be big and i I don't really understand why it's it's massive in brazil i don't really understand why either but i so i don't know why it's big in the places why it's big but i think i know why it's not big here and that's because of the the roots of where where music has been for the last like 50 to 100 years here 
do you see any parallels between Psytrance psych- culture the way that it is in Australia and like American dance music culture? And I know American dance music culture has changed so much over the last 10 years, even since you've been here, which is something I want to get into later. But I'm just curious if you see parallels between how it is in this country versus Australia or other places. Um, like just in the way the scene operates or? In the way that the scene operates and just like in the way of like the people and the people that attend them, just like kind of the general vibe. I know it's kind of a weird question, but. Yeah, so the um, so the, the people that attend parties more so in Australia, I would, or the, I'll start with America, I guess. The, the people who attend parties here, or at least the ones that I play, are mostly what you would call wooks, I guess, <laughs> right? Like sort yeah. of hippies, like disheveled people who have like miniature spoons on a necklace and you know, <laughs> crystal hats and shit like that. Um, <clears throat> and the people who attend the parties in Australia are kind of like wooks, but they're just like more uh, more Australian. I, and I call them like a, they're bogans. So there's it's really hard to describe what a bogan is to American people. I'll try and look at a definition online quickly. Um, Let's see, bogan. So an uncouth or unsophisticated person regarded as being of low social status, but it's specifically for, for an Australian person. So a bogan in Australia is slang for a person whose speech, clothing, attitude, and behavior are considered unrefined or unsophisticated. And depending on the context, the term can be a pejorative or self-deprecating. So it's exactly like a wook. It's it's exactly like a wook. That's so it's, funny. It kind, of, it kind of is, but like it's not it's it's they're very like different but it's hard to explain why it's very hard to articulate why i mean it's also hard to articulate like what a wook is to people who aren't in the scene people are like i have no exactly, idea what you're yeah. talking about so it's yeah, just there's a lot of varying levels to yeah, it yeah exactly you know it's i feel like it's one of those things where you, you just know it as soon as you see it like i'm sure when you saw yeah. your first american wook you were like oh this is how it is here especially in colorado that is just a very particular <laughs> niche part yeah, there's a lot of walks in Colorado. Um, yeah, so there's that, uh, the difference in people, uh, which is, so it's just like Australian walks, I guess. And then um, the difference in the way the scene operates is just, it's more kind of like sensationalized here, I think. And I think part of the reason why is just because there's more people into electronic music here, which means uh, people who are like big in the scenes and stuff like that are kind of put more on this pedestal. But then also there's just, economically there's just a lot more money involved here uh than than there is in australia so it's just taken a little bit more seriously here i guess because the rewards are so much higher uh versus in australia it's like you can get like somewhat big there i mean flume is obviously massive there but he's like you know an exception um most people who are in who are electronic musicians there uh, at least the people that i know and the scene that i came from are pretty small like the biggest shows that they'd play is you know like a couple of hundred people or something like that. And I guess like Opio, someone like Opio sort of rides the difference between like my friends who play the shows that are a couple of hundred people and Flume who plays the shows that are like 20,000 people. Opio is playing shows to like, you know, 800 people or something like that versus America where he's playing like, you know, Red Rocks <laughs> and stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's that as well. Like the, just the, the vastness of it here is, you know, it's a lot bigger and a lot more economically friendly. <laughs> to artists at least it was before covid yeah the american dance music scene definitely got super commodified probably towards the beginning of the last decade or so um and when you came here did you feel a pressure from 
anyone or just like the scene in general to like sensationalize your music in some way to like fit the American mold? Um, a kind of a little bit. I think I felt the need more to like write heavier music and more dance floor friendly music and stuff that fit more into like the dubstep scene just because there's more shows to play there and um i kind of came to this conclusion that like you know the on one hand you can think about it like oh you know you're a sellout and like you're doing some stuff that you don't really that you wouldn't be doing if there was no reward for doing it right but on the other hand it's like well i still get to sit around and make beats and make money making beats so it's (laughs) like it's not that bad and also it's like if you're a if you're smart about it you can kind of have fun doing whatever right like you you can make any genre of music and and make it fun for yourself and if you know yeah i think in that sense i started making like more dubstep and and stuff like that than i was in australia and and i don't think i probably would have done that if i was just touring in australia still or i might have because i was still coming over here to do shows either way but yeah definitely i noticed that i was doing that kind of stuff particularly just to get more shows and stuff. And that was like a pretty self-aware decision. Now, my question for you is, you know, spending time in Denver, I feel like the scene there is like pretty open to new things. So, I mean, you know, you could criticize the Wook a lot, but what do you think it is about those people that are coming to your shows pretty more regularly in terms of the music you make? Do you feel like you have to switch it up a lot more? Is it just a personal thing where you like to switch it up and just test yourself when you're making new tunes for people? So I think... um for me, I like to play stuff that the way you would express yourself to it is to dance to it, right? And the reason why is because when you're standing on stage as an artist, when you play music to somebody, the only way you can tell if they're enjoying it is if they're dancing. Because if they're not, then you have like no signifier to know whether or not they're enjoying it. And it's funny because I've played IDM sets before where like no one's dancing and everyone's sort of just like blankly staring at me, right? And then after the show, like a few of those people who I noticed in the crowd doing that would come up to me and be like, oh, that was great. Like, I really like enjoyed that. That was one of the coolest things or whatever. And what I realized is you just can't tell, like if you're playing heady music that is literally designed to just be listened to and sort of enjoyed mentally, then it's just impossible to know, like, if anyone's enjoying it. And then it's really hard to, like, feed off people from being on stage in it. Being on stage is, like, nerve wracking enough. And then if nobody's like dancing and just like blankly looking at you, it's just even more nerve wracking, right? And it just becomes very tough to to play a set that way because you just like constantly are like paranoid that no one's enjoying it and stuff like that. So um, yeah, I've tried to like, I think make stuff that's for that reason too. so, So I can more obviously tell if someone's enjoying it. I don't know if that answered the question or not yeah it did i mean i was mostly thinking of it's a phenomenon that you know i think that we i've noticed in crowds too is like when people are just kind of doing that whole you know whether they're partying too hard but just kind of stationary and i think i experienced a moment like that when i was seeing spangle at sonic bloom a couple years ago where he had like had all these live acrobats and like the music was phenomenal but for like i was watching cirque du soleil where like there were times where i felt like i couldn't even dance because i had to take in everything going on so it's funny to hear from your perspective and I will just say as someone who sometimes gets lost in what's going on and stops dancing that it is a good time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think from a acrobat's perspective or something like that, they're probably more used to that because I mean, the way that you enjoy an acrobat is by staring at them. It's not by dancing to them, you know. 
Um, so I think, yeah, in that sense, maybe. And then from Simon's perspective, at least everyone's not blankly staring at him, right? They're staring at like the acrobats. So the, the, maybe some of the um, stress of or the you know, paranoia has taken off him. Do you think that's a pretty common sentiment shared with DJs on stages? The whole fear of being watched, or maybe not the fear, but the paranoia of being watched? I, I think it's like a pretty, I think it's pretty common for DJs on stage to <clears throat> feel like if they can, if they see someone not dancing, that they're not enjoying it. Yeah, it's it, like, it's easy to just make that connection and assume that. Uh, but I've tried, I try, like, I'm aware of that now. And I try to like, not uh, fall into that, like negative hole of thinking or whatever. But the thing is, if someone's dancing, then you're 100% sure that they're enjoying it, right? Whereas someone's not dancing then it's kind of 50 50 like they might be enjoying it but it's hard to tell so these wooks that you refer to in colorado that you know wear their little spoons they are mostly doing ketamine um and i think it was in your episode with uh, mimi page and um ill gates which was great by the way i think you described base nectar fans as I think it was like dungeons of dragons, like warlords that have done too much ketamine to like remember who they are or something. It was like this hilarious comparison where I was like, yikes, but yes. And <laughs> I think that was uh, Dylan that made that. Well, what uh, what have you said it? And I was like, that's the perfect yeah, yeah. description. <laughs> and I'm I'm curious about like how and why ketamine came to be so frequently used within the bass music community, at least in America. And I'm I'm curious in just like your general observations of that and how it influences the scene, how it interacts with the scene and like whether it's the same in Australia, not the same, but like what drugs people use for shows out there. Is it as like conspicuous? Yeah, for sure. There's like some crazy ketamine thing going on <clears throat> in the States. Uh, I don't really understand it. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I don't understand. I mean, I guess it's kind of like getting drunk to some degree but like it lasts not as long and then you don't get a crazy hangover or something i don't know i would assume that's why like it just makes you like a little buzzed kind of or something if you do it in small amounts i guess if you do it in large amounts then it makes you very buzzed uh in australia it's not so much ketamine it's more psychedelics like acid and dmt and stuff like that i've i've noticed uh but then again i haven't been to australia in a while or at least haven't been involved in the scene there in a while and also the parties that i was at were pretty much psytrance parties which are you know psytrance Psy stands for psychedelic trance so um you know a lot of people are probably just doing acid at those parties so i might just have like a um like a uh, uh whatever that bias is where you look at the certain thing and then take your data from that uh and then I guess people drink a lot more I've noticed in Australia, at least more than in San Francisco. I've noticed people don't really drink too much here. Uh, so there's that. And then, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't really understand the ketamine thing here, to be honest. It's, yeah, it's a weird drug of choice, I think, for parties. Same with DMT. Like, I've never really understood, like, how, especially at, like, tipper shows. It's just, like, how, how do you, like, stand up straight on DMT in the middle of a dance floor? it's beyond me i was gonna say that i've seen at festivals like you know it's a very noticeable smell and there have been times where i turned around and it's like literally mm -hmm. someone cradling in someone else's lapses or they're supporting them 
you know and i just had the same kind of experience was like mm-hmm. whoa like why yeah. <laughs> why here why now yeah they're, they're like you know what would make you know a tipper set even better if i was falling over on dnt yeah i don't i don't know i feel like those those sets like spongle and tipper and stuff like that they get paid like such a huge amount of money to play them so they throw a ton of money into the production so it's already like so impressive just looking and looking at it and listening to it um yeah i don't know why people feel the need to also do dmt on top of that yeah i guess it's just because the music itself is so psychedelic in nature and then people know that the visuals are going to be very psychedelic in nature so I think one thing I've noticed with this culture and maybe it's just a generational thing is that like people just people just try to do like the most and like the the bass nectar example was great because I think his fan base was like one of the most toxic and problematic in all of electronic dance music and it was it was sad I mean I used to be like a like a fairly big bass nectar fan like not one of those people that got like competitive about it and that had seen him 40 times but i'd seen him like a fair decent amount of times because if you're an american electronic music fan like you literally cannot not see bass nectar but what i noticed Mm. about his fan base was that they just took it so far all the time like i would see people dropping like flies in the crowd all the time and i was like why do people have this inclination to do this and then you know, you, you said it on a different episode about the evolution of people's music taste. I think you said like people kind of get exposed to bass nectar first and then like you get a little more niche with Tipper. And then I think you said like mm. Jade Cicada and then, you know, and that can lead to someone to someone like you. But like, uh, I don't know. It's like, I feel like the further you go into IDM sometimes and that like, you know, experimental bass music, it's like, I mean, ketamine can make it sound cooler and more interesting, but it's just, it it takes away from the experience itself because I just, I I find that like when I do ketamine, I tend to not enjoy the shows as much because I get kind of like lost from the narrative or whatever, but it just, I just really, I just really wonder where the inclination to do it came from, but. Well, I think part of it is that it's just like super addictive, right? So a lot of people like, get into doing it because their friends are doing it and then all of a sudden they're addicted to ketamine um same with alcohol right it's like it's not entirely people's fault that they get addicted to it and it's like you know same with cigarettes it's not entirely smokers faults like you, these things are incredibly addictive and you you don't have to be exposed to them that much to to develop habits with them and stuff and i would say a lot of the usage in the scene is like uh probably addicts <laughs> who are just you know not uh not admitting that they're addicts you know they're like oh no i just do it at shows or whatever and it's like yeah but you also kind of do it on thursdays and you kind of do it on tuesdays <laughs> i mean i just some people that i know I'm not saying that everyone does that no i think i think you're absolutely right it's like i know several people in like several parts of the country where that's where that's the same case where it becomes a habit outside of shows as well and i think you know the f- festival scene the music scene like whatever you want to call it I think it's like beautiful when it bleeds into your everyday life and when it's not just like this like black and white thing where like you go to shows sometimes and then it's like you're like your normal self like it's cool when it like bleeds into it but like the the substance use it's it can become like a huge problem when when that happens as well and I've seen I've seen a lot of friends like really really struggle with it and it's I think it's hard for people to stop because it's so conspicuous in the scene and like it's it's a huge problem and like people don't really talk about it but like it's a huge fucking problem in the scene. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, another big problem uh, in a, in Australia uh, is meth. Like a lot of people, I forgot to mention that a lot of people at parties actually smoke meth. Um, but I've noticed uh, a lot of people in America take Adderall, uh, which is like fairly common, right? Especially for college kids and stuff like that. And um, yeah, I took Adderall once and I've done meth as well. And I pretty much would like say that they're, they're pretty comparable in terms of their effects and how they make me feel and how, how bad they feel for my body and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's another crazy one where it's just like super conspicuous, like not even related to shows just in general in America. Yeah. And just so normalized too, because it's, it's so easy to get a prescription for Adderall and they prescribe it to kids when they're like six years old or so it's, it's, com it's completely insane. It's like, if someone can't pay attention mm -hmm. in school, it's like they come up with th this like solution that will have you addicted to it for the rest of your life. It's really just so bizarre to me that of like the substances that are like normalized and legal in America, like alcohol and Adderall versus like psychedelics that are completely vilified and like stigmatized. Is that the case in Australia? Like what is the, where does everything fall in terms of like legality and like criminalization, if you know? It's pretty much the same as America, except um, in America, in some parts, like in Denver and in Oakland and stuff, mushrooms are legal, uh, but they're not in Australia. So, um, and also cannabis is, is generally not legal in Australia either. I think you can maybe get, get it medically or something like that. And I've also heard of some people in Australia getting um, approved for, uh, what, is, what is it called, Spravato, the um, nasal spray of ketamine for depression. Uh, <clears throat> So there's like that kind of legality, like medical stuff. Uh, and yeah, as far as America goes, it's a little bit more progressive in that way. Like cannabis is pretty much fully legal almost. And um, yeah, yeah. And uh, the rest of the stuff is pretty much the same here as it is there. It's, you know, ketamine is illegal, acid is legal, all that sort of stuff. Now, I actually have a question for you kind of about like the production end about the music you make. And, you know, I was listening to Duncan Trussell's podcast and you were on that and he called you a sonic alchemist, which I think is like the most apt description of the kind of music you make. And I was curious for you, cause like, I know with your most recent release, you had a lot of collabs on it. You know, I think uh, most of the songs are, you know, with someone else. So what is it like for you to produce this kind of music in conjunction with another person's brain? Is that something where you guys have to sit down and power together or do you just send an initial idea out and then wait for them to send their part back and then you guys tweak it out from there? Yeah, that's usually how it happens. I like to generally start them together if possible. And then from there, it's like, we'll go home and just like figure it all out on the internet after that. But generally it all happens through Dropbox. So, um, you know, I'll put like the project file in Dropbox and then just send it to the other person and then they'll open it on their end, do a little bit and then just hit save. And then that will update the Dropbox folder on my end. And then I can open it on my end, do a little bit of work, hit save, and then it's updated on their end and so on and so forth. And then as we're doing all of that, we're just like either having phone calls about it or just typing about it on like Facebook messenger or discord or something like that. Uh, and then, yeah, we'll just like kind of nut it out that way over the span of however long it takes. Sometimes it can take like a few days or other times it can take like months or years if we're like not, not like constantly working on it. That's usually because like both people are busy and then <clears throat> it'll just sort of like sit dormant for a long time. In fact, most collabs sit dormant for a long time. It's like a, pretty classic thing I think that happens with uh, electronic artists. Electronic artists, in my opinion, are like notoriously lazy. They're like incredibly, 
I don't know, like they'll say like, oh, I'm busy and like don't have time to work on shit or whatever. But it's, it's not that they don't have time to work on shit. It's, it's that working on shit is hard. Uh, it requires a lot of like m- mental energy. You know, it's kind of like um, if you think about like stuff that you just put off like in your daily life, right? Like going to the post office to take a package there or something or like, you know, paying a bill or like, I don't know, making your bed or just like little stuff like that that is that you want to procrastinate on. Music production is like that times a thousand. It's like really hard to start sometimes. And I feel like, uh, a lot of music producers just like sort of you know fall victim to just that and just don't produce music enough now how do you choose who you want to work with is these people that you have relationships beforehand or is it ever the case where you just hear a really cool song and you reach out to that person and kind of pick their brain uh it's both so like sometimes uh, you know i'll hear something that someone else has done and, and think that it's really cool and then I'll hit them up through like SoundCloud or find their email and send them an email or like you know, find them on Twitter and tweet at them or send them a DM or DM them on Instagram or whatever. Just be like, hey, cool stuff. Want to work on a song? Um, and then other times people will hit me up and ask me if I want to work on something. And then other times, yeah, it's just friends that I just know from wherever. And then we'll just like be in the same studio at the same time and decide to start working on stuff. I mean, it happens in a bunch of different ways, really. Now, I'm curious, too, because the only time I've ever actually seen you live was for a little bit at Bisco when you did your Mr. Bill Gates set. How was preparing for a set like that? Or, I mean, have you done sets like that with another person or was that a first time for you? Yeah, me and Dylan have done like maybe 10 or 20 sets together now. And oh, that shit. was like maybe the fifth or sixth one. And then um, I've done a bunch with Kill Smith as well uh, under the name Kill Bill. And uh, hmm. yeah, they're pretty fun. Um generally same thing like we'll just get in a studio together and just like collect all the tunes that i play in my set and collect all the tunes that like dylan or chris plays in their sets and then we'll just sort of put them all in record box and then just kind of figure out like so most djs will sort of have like a it's kind of like a set list right like a routine that they mostly play through at like most shows and then if they have like a new song that they like or uh, they've finished a new song or something like that. Like you'll just work it into your set list that already exists. And then over the span of about six to 12 months, the whole set list kind of just re- naturally recycles itself. And eventually like every year it's just different, right? But it's like, if you're playing a show on like a Friday night, Saturday night on one weekend, and then a Friday and Saturday night on the next weekend, the set might be like 10% different at most. Um, but you know, generally the same people are not going to see you at like any of those shows. And then you, you'll come back around the next year. And, and then by that time, um, the set will be basically completely different to when they heard it last. So I'll find, like, I'll take my current set list, you know, that, that I've been playing and then Dylan will take his current set list that he's been playing. And then we'll sort of just like mesh them together and just figure out like where little routines of his, like that are in the similar same key and BPM ranges as like sections of my set. will just go together and then we'll just sort of like try and interlock them and then just sort of have like sections of the set. It's like, all right, here's like for the first 10 or 15 minutes, it's going to be all like the heavy dubstep stuff. And then for the next 15 minutes after that, it's just going to be like, I don't know, um, halftime. And then like the next 15 minutes after that, maybe we'll do some weird shit like house and something, you know? Um, so we'll just kind of like have checkpoints and sections and just work our way through it that way. So I have a question, like is that must be like a live set, right? Because as someone that's like very ignorant about music production, 
whenever I see something build as a live set, I always get like a little confused because I'm like, well, I, in theory, I hope that everything is a live set. When I go see music, I hope that nothing is like super, just someone just like presses play or whatever. So can you just explain the basics to me of like what, what makes like a live DJ set or producer set, like what makes it like live, so to speak? Um, yeah, this is like a complicated question and it's like also a question that doesn't really have a, an answer because everyone's definition of what it is, is different and there is no right answer to it because, you know, like what one person thinks is live, another person might think is easy to do. So it's not live. Right. <laughs> and, and it really all sort of like revolves around how hard something is to do and how, 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 like, what are the chances that you can fuck it up? So, um, for instance, uh, playing a set is pretty much just pressing play between one time and a million times. Like that's all it is. So either you press play once at the start and a whole hour set plays, or you press play on a million different things over the span of an hour and you play many of the different elements through the hour. Right. And then it's a whole spectrum from one time to, <laughs> to a million times of pressing a thing. Um, and then it's just kind of up to you to decide like uh, where on that spectrum you call it live and where on that spectrum you call it not live. And then what is not live? Like, is that, uh, cause like a, so a DJ set, right. Is generally, um, and this is like the, the case for like 99% of them is, uh, you'll take a bunch of tracks that you've already written in the studio and you'll take the fully rendered version. So the version that you would listen to on Spotify is the exact same version that the DJ is playing live basically. And they'll like play that song. And then on the other deck, they will play another one of their songs, right? That is also just the same song that you you can listen to on Spotify, but they'll just like mix it in a certain way with effects and you know volume faders and stuff like that. And then they'll just do that for an hour, like mix between songs. Um, <clears throat> and that's 99% of, of sets. So if you consider that live, then most of them are live. Um, but then, I don't know, some people don't consider it live unless they're like playing an instrument or something. But then it's like you can also set the instrument up in such a way, especially if it's a MIDI controller, that it's like super easy to do. So then like does that classify as live? And, and then also if, um, if the set is completely like pre-planned for like one hour, but you play all of the parts, but you don't like choose any of the track listing, like but let's say every time there's a keyboard part, you play it, then is that live? Is that more or less live? than a DJ who doesn't have a pre-planned set, but doesn't play the keyboard, but is able to choose exactly what track they play when. It's like, which one is like more flexible in terms of a musical vibe? I would argue the DJ, right? But he's technically, or they're technically doing less. So it's kind of like a tricky question. That's cool. I had no idea that it was like more complicated than that. Yeah, I like the notion of just you referring to it as just hitting play multiple times. Yeah, I mean, if you think about like playing a guitar, you're fretting a note and you're hitting play with a pick right so it's like if you play like a whole song you've just hit play like a couple of hundred times whereas a dj to play one song hits play one time right but you still have to hit the thing in time it's just that a cdj has like no articulation to it and uh guitar does now is that what you mostly play on is cdjs yeah yeah i used to do it on a laptop um but i just kind of like started getting paranoid that my laptop was gonna like 
you know break <laughs> when i was playing live like it was you know just if you have some random thing where the computer just locks up and hangs then it, you don't want that to happen live and cdjs are just a yeah. little bit more robust and stable and also um all like most clubs have them <laughs> so you just have to rock up with the usb stick so like i don't have to even rock up with like a backpack or anything i just literally have a usb stick in my wallet and i can just like rock up to a club and play a set and as long as you don't lose it you're all right, good exactly and it's like i get paid the same amount of money to do it and no one gives a shit like no one in the crowd is like what you didn't bring your computer it's like <laughs> like no one cares right yeah now i have a question for you kind of about like you know the business side of the industry and elizabeth and i were just talking before you got on that you're going to be doing a show in san francisco and is this going to be your first show post you know the shutdown yeah if you don't consider the one i did on the internet then yeah <laughs> Yeah, this is the um, first one that's that's happening for me during COVID. And I was kind of, I don't, like, I just don't think I would do a show at the moment if it required flying. And I don't think I would yeah. do a show if it required me to, like, just be close to anyone. Just cause I'm pretty paranoid about COVID. And um, I'm in, like, uh, have you, do you guys know about the concept of, like, pods? It's kind of like... Yeah, like a each, quarantine each. pod of like people that you kind of agree to co-quarantine with. Is that what you're referring yep. to? Yeah, exactly. So I live by myself, but I'm a part of a pod, which is another household of 10 people. So I basically have to abide by their quarantine rules. Uh, and they're really strict because if, you know, COVID gets out in their house, it's kind of bad because there's 10 of them. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I had to like, you know, uh, make sure that all of them agreed that, that I was okay to play this show. Uh, and they said they were, but under the conditions that I essentially um, go in through not the public entrance, I go in through our back entrance, so I avoid everyone. And then uh, basically get there just before my set, play, and then leave out that same entrance. And also Clorox wipe the CDJs before playing and just social distance like, with other artists. Yeah. And pretty much don't have to like yeah be near anyone. And it's outdoors and stuff like that. So I think it's a pretty low risk. For, for me, it is anyway. Like <laughs> Hopefully it is as well for the people in the... Uh, the patrons right well if it's how elizabeth is telling me you know i am affiliated with a 700 person club out here in syracuse you know we kind of do everything and we were trying to do the same kind of setup where you know it was tables and chairs and you'd like reserve a table with some people so you know my question for you as an artist is under this like new business model obviously capacities are lower and you know the money looks a lot different than it used to for sure is it if this is corona supposed to keep going do you think it's livable for performers to perform under these new guidelines if it's changed at all for you yeah i think it'll just get different like um instead of paying for tickets to you know go to a club and then a bunch of people split that money like the promoter the artist the opening acts all that sort of stuff the venue um it'll just be i mean i'm not sure how venues and promoters and all of that stuff are going to deal with it but I, I think artists will be okay if they just you know adapt to the internet properly and just do like twitch and patreon and Bandcamp and stuff like that because i mean you can make money in so many different ways through subscriptions now like if you have you can set up a Bandcamp subscription thing which is what cursor ha cursor does right and he makes like a shit ton of money as far as i can tell doing that where basically a bunch of people subscribe to his Bandcamp for like five bucks a month and he has like thousands of people subscribed for this amount of money so if you do the math, like that's, you know, I don't know how much, like probably yeah, a lot of thousand dollars at like 20 grand a month or something. Um, and, and he basically just like puts tunes out on Bandcamp for those people every month, right? So it's, um, I don't know if it's that amount, I'm just like uh, guessing, but 
uh yeah like that's one way um another way is to have like a patreon where you say to people i'll like put out x amount of youtube videos a month or x amount of songs on soundcloud per month or do x amount of streams on twitch per month if you subscribe to me for however much and then you get like perks or whatever so that's one way to make money as well um and another way is twitch streaming where people can subscribe to you or donate to you on twitch like as you're you know just streaming yourself producing or playing lives like playing sets or whatever um so i mean i think there's a bunch of options for people but a lot of artists just sort of um haven't adapted to that i think but a lot of artists have as well so uh yeah I, but also having said that i mean i think shows will go back at some point I, I don't think it's we're too far off i think we're maybe another year off max i just hope some more venues can hang in there yeah that's that's the thing i'm worried about is not like whether or not shows will go back like they definitely will it's that when they go back like how many booking agents are they going to be? How many venue managers are going to still exist? How many venues are they going to be that have you know, are, that have been able to pay rent through this whole time and stuff like that? Because yeah, I mean, when right. you think about a booking agent's whole business model and the whole way that they make money is they have a large roster of artists, usually anywhere from like you know ten to fifty. I mean, maybe not fifty, maybe ten to like thirty, right? And they pretty much have all of their artists out on the road all the time. And then they make 10% of all of their artists' show fees. So like, let's say they have 10 artists playing a show that weekend for 100 bucks each. Then they'll make 10 bucks from each of those artists if they get 10% of everyone's show fee. So they'll make 1,000 bucks that week, right? Um, so booking agents are screwed because like their entire model is small cuts of lots of artists playing shows. Um, and then obviously artists are kind of... <clears throat> artists are kind of screwed but not as screwed as booking agents i think because they can make money off the internet a bit easier than booking agents can yeah it's a hard skill set to broadcast on twitch yeah like contracts and shit like oh watch me do my taxes (laughs) (laughs) your show at the midway will be my first show since quarantine as well now that i think of it so i'm really looking forward to it do you remember um what your last show was before quarantine yeah i do it was actually do i I could look at my calendar and figure it out. Let me see. It was, um, I think it was in March. Let's see. I remember I canceled a bunch, like on my own accord actually. And then everything just like fell to shit just after that anyway. Um, all right. It was uh, Indianapolis, I think. Yeah, it was uh, February 22nd in Indianapolis with Freddie Todd and Dorfex Boss. Nice. And then I was supposed to do this whole tour in March in Washington, Virginia Beach, Greensboro, Harrisburg, Rochester, Cleveland, um, and then a bunch of other stuff. But yeah, they, they all got canceled. It's in Rochester, New York? Yeah. It was funny because um, they all got canceled in like mid-march and all the promoters were like oh this will all be over by like june so they postponed them all until june and now like looking back at that it's just like yeah (laughs) nope yeah i mean that's the side of the business i'm in is like we i work with promoters and i'm a venue manager and marketing director and you know i do a bunch of stuff on that side so my, my boss had the same thought you know it was like well you know like we'll push stuff till june and then in june it was like ah we'll push stuff to november and then now it's like we're starting to confirm shows for December of 2021 and just hoping that that'll be sustainable by then. I think so, yeah. December 2021 should be 
yeah that'll be that's like a year away so i have friends who just haven't stopped touring like um boogie t and dirt monkey and subtronics that they're, they're like doing a tour yeah it's it's all drive-ins but i mean yeah they have they have not stopped touring like those guys are just aggressive and, and like dirt monkey i mean he stopped for like two months or three months max and then just like as soon as shows were able to be done legally again he just started doing them straight away just didn't give a fuck yeah he hit it yeah he, did, he was the one to like break the seal um he did the that showing at guilt in um florida mm, and, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that was the one that's right that was like the first one to happen i think like going back and yeah like people were pretty angry on twitter right well people are angry about a lot of reasons now <laughs> yeah there's bigger things to be angry about right now i think so i want to know about your side projects a little bit or i don't know if you call them side projects but i know you have like another moniker i think it's electricado so at what point do you personally like decide okay i'm going to release music under a different moniker and like what what are like the reasons behind that yeah so it's it's a different genre so it's mostly like techno and house and electro and and like four four stuff and we're signed to that project is signed uh to mousetrap so it's just all like dead mousey type stuff i guess so pretty much if i start anything in that vein then i'll like hit the other so it's there's another guy in that project his name is ryan um, I'll hit Ryan up and I'll be like, hey, you want to work on this for Electricado? And then once again, it goes into the Electricado Dropbox folder. And then we just do the same thing I was talking about before, where like I'll open it, work on it, he'll open it, work on it, so on and so forth. And Electricado moves at like the slowest pace of any project. It's like we get an EP out like every two to three years or something like that. It's crazy how slow we work. But I mean, you know, every time we put something out, people seem to like it. So it's fine <laughs> we're, we're just like we're just not a, at all like pursuing that one aggressively we have no like we're not trying to do what you know the whole get a million tracks out on spotify and get playlisted and do tons of shows or anything like we're not trying to do that we're just trying to have fun with techno music yeah that's awesome and i know you also had another you had a direct collaboration with dead mouse i think a couple years ago and how I mean, I guess you kind of already explained how that kind of stuff comes to be. It's just like, it has to do with like outreach and like agreeing to do a project. But I mean, knowing about like Electricado, like I do see like the 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 intersection with how it would like relate to like Dead Mouse and how it would make sense to like be on his specific label. But if I wasn't aware of Electricado, I would just never think that you would intersect with someone like Dead Mouse Cause he like, he's rarely, I mean, he was the first like EDM electronic music act that I ever saw. But once my taste became a little bit more niche, like I, he's never on the festivals I go to. So I'm just curious about how that specific collaboration came about since as Mr. Bill and as Dead Mouse, those styles are like very enormously different. Yeah, that was a weird one. So he basically, um, so he's kind of just like a nerd and he's into a bunch of nerdy shit like for instance he he has his own internet at his house like he has a tower in his backyard that provides him with his own internet like he doesn't buy internet from like verizon or sonic or whatever like it's he owns his own he's his own isp um and then he has like a basement just full of like crazy servers and his uh studio is just full of modular synths and yeah he's just a crazy tech 
wizard like he's really really intelligent and you know really good at like programming and the show that you see him play with like the giant cube and all of that stuff he makes all the visuals for that himself like he, he's a insanely hard worker and really like yeah just super intelligent techie nerdy guy and so i guess he like found out about me through just like ableton shit because i just put a lot of the you know weird techie stuff online to do with that and he just hit me up on twitter one day well he actually he followed me on twitter and then just messaged me randomly and i was like oh hey what's up <laughs> pretty pretty <laughs> weird that you're hitting me up um and then we just started chatting a bunch and then uh a collab just like happened out of that i guess now when you look at those two different styles of music like elizabeth said they are very different what is it like for you you know performing for those two different crowds is there stuff you see that's similar or are they just two vastly different kind of shows um they're pretty different like an electricado set it, like i said it's mostly 4-4 and a mr bill set at this point is mostly dubstep so <clears throat> they're pretty different but i think there's like a fair bit of like you i think you could play both sets to either crowd and they'd probably be okay with it i think my my fans in both directions are generally like fairly accepting of both dubstep and electro and house and techno and stuff like that um but yeah i i actually don't think dead mouse's style is that different from mine i think what what happened is dead mouse has like a bunch of songs that got massive and all the songs that got massive were like house songs uh but he also has a a giant discography of hundreds and hundreds of songs and a lot of them are glitch and like idm and stuff like a good portion of them maybe like 50 percent or something i'm curious about like you know your time in america you've you say you've been here for like five or six years now how do you think that the scene has evolved and i know that's kind of like a, a vague question so i'll give you kind of like a concrete example like when i think about the tipper community and how that's kind of like completely exploded over the last like five years. Like I know he's been around since like, like forever, but like in terms of coming into like not mainstream American consciousness, but like within this community, he's, you know, he headlines all the festivals now. And like, when I look at his like fan page on Facebook, you see more people in the tipper community than in like the pretty lights community. And like 10 years ago, that would not have been the case. So like, with that example in mind, and you can go in a different direction, of course, if you want, but like, how do you think the scene has evolved? I'm just, I'm curious to hear it from like a musician's perspective, like from that, from your, from your side of it. Yeah, I, I think that electronic music has just gotten bigger in general. I think more people have just gotten into it over the last five to six, seven years or whatever than, um, than yeah, it's, it's just become so big. It's kind of like the, electronic music as a whole not like any specific genre like you know tipper stuff or like glitch or dubstep or whatever but electronic music as a whole now is like in my opinion the biggest genre on the planet it's like bigger than you know rock music and whatever like you listen to the radio like most pop music is essentially electronic music with a vocal on it like it's marshmallow it's elenium it's that's the kind of stuff that gets played on the radio now right and um that's also the people who headline like the big electronic music festivals and if you look at something like Coachella, it's like a lot of the headliners are electronic music people like Flume and Alice in Wonderland, stuff like that. Uh, so it's evolved in that way, I think, a lot where it's kind of just become like the thing. Uh, so in that sense, um, I think there's this trickle down effect where uh, 
obviously like the biggest artists have these huge like universes surrounding them of like their brand and all the stuff that they do and they have like these insanely huge fan bases but like i mentioned in the um podcast with mimi and dylan it's like people get into that and then they get into like some more niche stuff and then they get into more and more and more niche stuff and there's this like trickle down effect right from like the the big the biggest shit where like these people are selling out stadiums and stuff to this the small stuff like what i'm doing i play like you know 500 person rooms and stuff like that um so it's it's kind of like a rising tide raises all ships kind of situation for someone like me the bigger electronic music as a whole gets then the the better it is for me because it's you know my job in the industry at large is uh it's like behooves me for it to be a popular thing right so yeah i've found it to um to change in that way a lot it's just gotten to be like a lot bigger than than it was before and how do you think that trickle down effect happens is it a matter of like a specifically curated festival where maybe i'm there to see bass nectar but you're also playing like a late night set like do you think it happens like that is it a matter of like Maybe you hear a song in a set and you're like, shit, I got to get that ID. And then all of a sudden you find like a brand new DJ or is it like, I don't know, like listening to shit on Spotify and all of a sudden like the radio, like the Spotify recommended radio comes on and like maybe I'm listening to Tipper and all of a sudden it like transitions to Mr. Bill. Like how do you, how do you think that trickle down effect works? I think it's all of those things, to be honest. I think it's like, um, yeah, if you're, I think a lot of it probably happens on Spotify and SoundCloud and stuff like that, where people are listening to one thing and then the recommended, like the algorithm just goes like, oh, you'll probably like this too and just plays another thing that you haven't heard but like. Uh, or um, I think word of mouth uh, has a lot to do with it, you know, um, where you'll be, you'll log on to Facebook one day and your entire feed will be like, wow, have you heard Flume's new mixtape? And you'll be like, what the fuck? <laughs> who's, who's this guy? And like then go check it out so i think that happens a lot or you know if you're in in the tipper community right it's like for a while everyone was like jade cicada like who who the fuck is this guy (laughs) um so i think there's this word of mouth thing that happens a lot uh and you know with bass nectar there was always the thing of him playing out other people's music and then pretty much like as soon as the set was finished the set list was on reddit and then you know all of the bass fans would find out stuff that way like he played one of my tunes once and a bunch of people found me that way um yeah i think it's just a mixture of stuff like that now for you as a performer you know sound system culture i think is becoming really prevalent especially within like you know the the bass community do you have favorite systems that you like playing on versus others um yeah i like playing on uh honestly i just think any sound system that is good is fine for me i'm not like one of those i need to play on function one type people although i like function ones they're good but i also think danley sound makes some good systems i really like pk i also really like uh kr uh sorry kv2s uh they're pretty Mm. cool there's not a lot of those in america there's one set of kv2s i seen in a club in uh washington called foundation which i think got shut down for selling drugs or something but the sound system there was really good. Uh, what's the other one? Hennessy. Um, they're really good too. Mm. Yeah, like Hennessy's. Yeah, yeah. The battle axes. Everyone's big, mm-hmm. big fan of those. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of like the main 
few i guess uh what's that other there's like this big company that does those big line arrays um jbl they they do some like mm-hmm. decent line array systems uh i think like any big company like that uh making fine speakers and the gear is fine it's just how you set it up right like if you set your amps up like super inefficiently or the person running the the desk like doesn't know what they're doing or the the speakers are set up in just a dumb way you know like a lot of the thing that has uh to do with how stuff sounds good is like where you are in, in relation to the speakers right so it's like if you set a sound system up with the speakers facing away from the crowd that's going to sound horrible like it's going to sound muffled and crap because the sound's going to be shooting the other way right and then it's a whole spectrum from there to facing the crowd perfectly and then there's like getting the toe in perfectly as well so the stereo image like pops really nicely is really hard to do especially because like it's easy to do in a studio because you you kind of have no other way to figure this out other than to earball it like just to listen to it and see see if it sounds good or not and in a studio you can just put your speakers up and just listen and then sort of just move them until it sounds like the stereo image is really good and the center image is really good but with a giant sound system it's like logistically not that easy because speakers are fucking massive so it's like you listen to it and then you're like all right we can like move it a millimeter this way and that way but they're not going far because they're so heavy so yeah it's like logistically difficult to do Uh, so i can understand why people don't you know spend a lot of time getting that stuff perfect um but yes so i I guess the answer is i don't um have a favorite system i think it's just important that the system is set up right and uh run by someone who knows what they're doing and if it's just it's just a good system like in the sort of you know top 10 brands that make good systems and you have enough speakers for the space that you're working with and also not too many speakers for the space that you're working with because that's a thing as well uh then Mm -hmm. then i think it's fine by my standards yeah, I think that's a one of the reasons I'm really glad this kind of scene hasn't blown up quite yet is like I do think that the sounds are just typically easier to dial in in a smaller room. You know, so that's like where, you know, I think the biggest shows I've gone to like big bass shows, like, you know, maybe like you're saying like 500, <clears throat> 700 rooms that they're mostly tight knit. And, you know, I think of the black box. I think that's one of my favorite sounding rooms where it's like I've I don't think there's any really bad spot within that main room, like wherever you're at, you're going to be buzzing yeah the black box is nice for sure so that's um i believe function one tops but i think the guy who runs that room built the subs for that room i think or it's the other way around maybe he built the tops and uses function one subs it's one or the other i have one last question for you from me personally and like you you were saying earlier that electronic music is like bigger than rock and roll, one of the biggest things in the country right now. It's all over the radio. I 100% agree with you. And what I'm wondering is like, what what do you think the legacy of like this culture, of this kind of music, like what do you think it's gonna be in like 20, 30 years? Like how are people gonna look back on it? I, I hope that they, that they remember like this part of the subculture because I I personally hate telling people that I like EDM. I'm like I you know I don't like EDM. I like electronic music. I I, I don't know because I think EDM has this reputation and when people think of electronic music they associate it with what's on the radio, but there's so much more to it and that's one of the reasons that we started this podcast honestly is because we wanted to kind of explore the evolution of this specific subculture. So 
what what do you think is going to be its legacy down the line are people going to remember it are people going to write it off like disco i i fucking hope not because this shit is like incredible to me and like i just i i just wonder though like what its legacy is going to be yeah um i think it got i think it's bigger than disco ever was um so i don't know if it'll get written off in that way but i think it's like probably going to be looked at the same way as we look at a lot of other old genres like um I think electronic music is as big as classical music was uh, and I think it's as big as jazz ever was and as, as big as rock ever was so I think it's going to have like a similar legacy to those things where when it comes out the other end and there's some new thing in like 50 years or something like that it's going to be sort of like yeah it went uh, classical um, music concrete or whatever and then, and then like you know uh, through the last hundred years like jazz uh, you know rock um all that sort of stuff and then electronic was like there and then there's some other stuff after it so i think um yeah i think it's like built its pocket in history for sure i like the thought of maybe there someday being like a classic dubstep radio station yeah totally it's like classic dubstep hits <laughs> playing your ruscos and caspas <laughs> yeah 100 percent. i think that'll exist and you'll be yeah there'll be all these like old 40 year old people working on the equivalent uh, vehicles of the time like hovering skateboards in shops listening to dubstep on their shitty radio whilst they work on their spaceship <laughs> oh that's the kind of future i actually hope happens yeah <laughs> yeah we'll see it's a bit of a confusing time to think about the future right now yeah for sure yeah, what are you? What are you? Uh, your thoughts on um, this question for both of you? Just on everything that's happening right now with like the uh, debate and Trump getting COVID <laughs> and all that stuff. The orange sky, you know. I mean, how did you feel about that build? <laughs> like that was just like the icing on the cake. I yeah. was like, I almost like ignored it. I, I was like, I can't even fucking deal with this today. <laughs> yeah. What is the orange sky? Oh, man, fuck. There was a day here that so the fires just got so bad that um the entire sky was like wilted with ash which means the sun couldn't get through so mm. the sun was hitting the ash and just dispersing light so it looked like doomsday it was like the in um, it was like the middle of the day like midday or the entire day was like this but like specifically like 11 a.m midday the whole sky was just like bright orange but it was like dark it looked it looked like it was 5 a.m in the morning and it was like 11 a.m it was wow yeah really really crazy i've never i've seen something like it once and that was in sydney um in 2009 for the same reason fires uh but yeah I've, I've, it's it's pretty rare i think to experience that it's really crazy to just see something it's like hell on earth yeah i think that's a very accurate description of the current state of america <laughs> you know yeah. especially when you're talking about the debate where <clears throat> it's just fucking sad man you know <laughs> like neither side had me feeling super good about what was to come and then the whole trump getting covid thing you know i'm like well like no shit you know it's it's still a big deal now he's downplaying it saying it's not a big deal so it's just i don't know i'm uh in that part of america i'm i'm worried because i think whatever way this election goes either side is going to be super pissed off there's going to be a lot of tension so i'm uh just hoping to get through that as chill as possible i suppose yes but the whole world feels very dystopian yeah i'm embarrassed to be an american frankly i have been for for quite some time for for years now i mean and if you if you think about it like even you know i should have been embarrassed or at least more like conscious of how passively indoctrinated we are as like a 
culture as like a group of citizens like it's just I don't know just between like all of like the awful racial tensions and like the pandemic and everything it's just it's a really stressful time like it it really made me slow down like there have been several positives that have come out of it for me but like just as a whole I think it really just exposed just how wrong so many things are on so many levels I mean just even the the lack of infrastructure that schools have I mean like my dad is a is a school teacher he has to go back to school like I don't even know if they're testing him like it's I think it just goes to show that like the American infrastructure is crumbling like the American dream is like a complete fallacy it's like I don't know I don't really know I know that sounds super pessimistic but like I just don't even know what to think anymore yeah i I remember in 2016, I was like on tour at the time with uh, like four or five other people. And we're all just like, there's no way, there's no no fucking way Trump's getting elected. Like, and it just wasn't a thing on my radar. I was, and I was just at the time, just super optimistic about it. I was just like, this, it's going to be fine. And then he got elected and I was like, fuck. And now I'm kind of like the same, I'm feeling the same again, where I'm like, there's no way, like there's no possible way. But I mean, you know, I know that I shouldn't be that optimistic about it this time. Um, unfortunately, I can't vote because I'm not a citizen here. <clears throat> um, but yeah, hopefully you guys are voting if you're a citizen. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a good segue. If you're listening to this, please go fucking vote. Settle for Biden, please. I know, you know, it's just like vote for the l- lesser <laughs> yeah. of two evil mm-hmm. rapists. Just like get it over with. It's right. fine. Like just, just settle for Biden. Yeah. It's whatever. I think a point I saw that's um a little easier for me to stomach is you know it's i think it's easier or going to be easier to dismantle our whole two-party system than with someone like biden versus with the trump who's like going towards a a really creepily fast authoritarian kind of political regime Mm. so you know i'll I'll definitely take the weird dude who smells people sometimes in the hopes that we can get to the better place sooner yeah so a pretty funny meme it was like uh, Trump was acting like such a child in that debate. I'm surprised Joe didn't sniff him. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think that was part of the problem last time is not that, I mean, I also the fact that this shit was probably rigged, but um, not only that, but I think uh, just a lot of uh, liberals just didn't vote because they're just, you know, wooks. <laughs> Because, I, I mean, when you think about it, right, like most Wooks are probably going to be liberal. Uh, yes. I would say. Like, I would say most of them are not going to vote for Trump, right? But they're also very irresponsible and lazy. <laughs> like, probably don't vote. Um, I mean, that's probably too much of a generalization. That's probably unfair. But, you know, I, I just personally know a lot of friends of mine in the electronic music industry or, and you know, just surrounding the... Ele- they're not really in the industry, just people who, are, who listen to electronic music who just didn't vote in the last election but who also hate trump right so it's like kind of a walking oxymoron there to not vote and also hate trump oh man yeah it's just uh it's weird i'm glad you brought it up but it is just so it just feels so bizarre like it doesn't even feel like it's really our reality you know like when he got elected in 2016 i was like no like come on now what are we doing here and you know i thought it would be better but the way this last four years have gone, I really hope that people do go out and vote and we realize it's not just some LOL kind of matter. <clears throat> yeah, I think part of it is is like a lot of people were just like a lot of liberals were just feeling the same way I was where they were like, there's no way that Trump can get voted mm-hmm. in such a meme, right? Like how, how, how could that happen? 
and then didn't vote and then it of course happened so right so hopefully people realize that he can get voted in again and the way that he doesn't get voted in again is to go and vote against him (laughs) yeah now what is it i mean i'm sure what is like your perspective as an australian or what you know do you still talk to family back home like are we as much of a laughing stock to the world as it feels like we are uh i mean i don't know like i think honestly a lot of people in australia kind of follow american politics more than they follow australian politics just because it's kind of like a drama <laughs> like it's just a lot <laughs> more going on it's more exciting but to be fair australian politics isn't much better it's like we've gone through we've just ripped through like six prime ministers in the last few years i think or something like that the prime minister that is in currently in power scott morrison who people contract his name to scomo um <laughs> he uh completely just fled the country and went to hawaii during all those fires and just like didn't do anything so yeah he's no good either Uh, and before that we had someone else i can't remember but yeah i don't know it's yeah australian politics are also pretty bad to be honest jesus yeah well i guess with that you know when is the next mr bill politically charged tune coming out do you get inspired by negativity to make music like that? Or do you try to mostly bring it from a positive sort of place? I honestly don't follow politics that closely. I have been lately just because it's, you know, coming up to the election and um, hanging around a lot of people who are thinking about it a lot. And I'm thinking about it a lot. I'm looking at the news on Twitter probably too much and stuff like that. Um, but generally I don't follow politics that much because it doesn't really affect me too much. And I know that that's a bad reason to not look at it just because it doesn't affect me. But I guess like um, I look at the news in general like once a month or something like that, which is probably, I I should Mm -hmm. look at it more to be honest. Uh, But no, I don't ever really like um, get fueled from negativity to be honest. I'm mostly when I'm writing music, it's, it's honestly mostly because I'm bored and I'm just like looking for something to do and I just, don't want to go outside and do exercise or whatever and so i'm just like i should write some music so have you been writing a lot since the quarantine all happened yeah actually yeah i've written a lot um i have like yeah probably multiple albums of unfinished music ready to be finished but yeah that's finishing stuff is like the hard part i feel like starting stuff is easy and finishing it all is tricky well, it sounds like you haven't been so lazy, at least not as lazy as you're making yourself out to be. Right. The analogy, I think, a good analogy for finishing music, it's kind of like cooking, right? It's like when you cook, it's like the easy part is like putting everything in the fry pan and like frying it all up. The hard part is like cleaning everything after you finish. But yeah, overall, I would say it's been a somewhat productive quarantine. Well, I mean, it's cool that you have the podcast thing going too. Have you kind of amped up your podcast since the start of it? Or have you been just sticking to the same kind of scheduled regiment? I was for a while doing two a week and now I'm just back to one a week because I felt like two a week was like slightly too much. I mean, it, it's not really like that much. It's like two hours of talking a week. But uh, I don't know, I find like I'm a pretty like introverted person and yeah, I find just like, having these like long form conversations where um it's like very engaging where i'm not just like kind of half in the conversation half just doing my own thing on my phone or whatever or like half in the conversation texting on discord half doing something else it's like a very engaging like 
I'm not doing anything else other than having a conversation for an hour. I find um, if I have too many of them in a row, uh, like for one one week I had like five or six of them, like just day after day, because I was trying to like uh, build up a backlog of material to release in the following weeks, so I didn't have to do work for a few weeks. And um, yeah, I just found that to be super draining. Yeah, it is. Which seems weird, but. I mean, it's like you said, because it is like it is such a much more engaged conversation mm. than normal. Yeah, I think that's why podcasts got big is because everyone these days are like on their phone constantly and stuff. Right. And it's almost like to see two people or three people or whatever having an engaging conversation. It's like, wow, what's happening there? I haven't seen that in years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like no one has them anymore. Now, is there someone with your podcast? It's like, you know your Mount Everest of someone you'd love to talk to on your podcast? Uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, yeah, I guess, oh man, I'd love to talk to Sam Harris, honestly. Hmm. That's the guy I'd love to talk to, which I know that that's like a pretty dividing thing because he had that Charles Murray guy on his podcast who wrote that song, The Bell Curve, which is all about like eugenics and like looking at uh, difference in race and stuff like that. Hmm. So a lot of people don't like Charles Murray and therefore don't like Sam Harris because he had Charles Murray on his podcast. Mm-hmm. But I find him to be like an incredibly intelligent and interesting guy. And I think, yeah, I think he'd be interesting to talk to for sure. Nope, you've put it out in the universe, so it'll come back. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> we'll see. Cool. Well, that's about all I have on my end. Wes, do you have anything else? No, not really. I mean, I want to say thank you, man. It was really cool to get to sit down and talk to you. I'm really glad you had some time for us. I know, like you said, these things can be tiring. So I also feel like an introvert. So like doing these things is something I look forward to, just because it is nice to have like an actual conversation with someone that you might not normally. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. I had had a good time having this conversation. So yeah, thanks for having me on. It's good. Yeah, thank you for... Thank you for coming on. Um, super excited for your show at the Midway. Uh, you know, super grateful to you and to um, your manager. Is it Anand or how yep. do you say it? Anand, yeah. Anand, yeah. I'm super grateful to you both for, uh, you know, letting me come and like hang posters and just, you know, provide support there. It's a super fun opportunity and like a big opportunity for for me. That was like the intention I set at earlier this year. And it's like cool to finally see it coming to fruition despite all of the COVID obstacles. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it for both live music for the first time and for kind of getting to bring that project to, you know, somewhere. Awesome. Yeah, it'd be good to meet you in person as well. Yes, we can do socially distanced wave and, you know. A nice wave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever your pod allows. But if I see you on Irving Street, I'm going to, I'm going to holler when I get my boba tea or something. <laughs> yeah, nice. What's your, what's your boba tea place? It's tea pumps. Tea pumps oh, is tea the pumps. best. Okay. Yeah. I live right next to Teepinder, but I, I don't, I've been there like once. Yeah. There's, um, there's so many on Irving Street. If you walk down there, it blows my mind. I'm like, this is not a sustainable business model. It's like crazy. Yeah. There's literally like 20 of them in the span of like 10 blocks. <laughs> it's crazy. I know. Uh, I'm so jealous. The Asian scene out in Syracuse, New York is lacking. Yeah. This is like a unofficial Chinatown. I think it might be more Chinese than actual Chinatown in San Francisco, but I don't know for sure, but it really, it's like cool to like have that exposure like right right down the street from me so i i love this neighborhood um do you get down to the beach often uh so yeah i do i ride um i mountain bike a lot so i mountain bike through uh this path in golden gate park down to ocean beach and then back down irving usually 
Nice. Yeah, that's a good one. I like the beach a lot. Uh, also, they've shut down that like whole road next to the beach, so you can go down there and like ride yeah. up and down it, and there's no cars. It's really nice. Yeah. Have you been to a Strawberry Hill in Golden Gate Park? Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. I've ridden around there a lot. It has like that little Chinese pavilion. It has like a waterfall. You can go like do paddle boats or whatever. Oh, yeah. Stowe Lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stowe Lake. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's have, my favorite have, part of the park. Yeah, I've actually um, paddle boated there. It's good. Good time. Yeah, I haven't done the paddle boats yet. The, the geese kind of freak me out. I'm like afraid of most things with wings. So like I, I hate the geese in that area. But That's fair. I, geese know. are honestly assholes. I, I try to, <laughs> I try to, you know get over my fears but yeah i love that part of the park <laughs> yeah there's a ton of turtles there um if you like go through yeah if you if you get on the paddle boats and like get, do the loop you'll see like um on the inside where you like can't reach unless you're in a paddle boat there's just turtles basically surrounding that whole island wow. it's pretty yeah it's really cool oh well elizabeth whenever i get out to san fran we all gotta link up and get some boba and go look at some turtles in a paddle boat <laughs> yeah it's a yes. good time i'm down <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to our conversation with Mr. Bill. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as we did. Mr. Bill does a lot of stuff besides produce eclectic bass music. He also has his podcast, the Mr. Bill podcast, and he actually has a lot of resources for producers out there as well. Um, he's a great teacher. So if you are into Ableton, I think he's one of the Ableton wizards out there right now. So uh, you should definitely check out all the resources he has to offer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Mr. Bill is the master of music and his podcast has recently become one of my favorite things to listen to. So hope you guys listening to this will definitely check out his if you haven't already. And join us next time. We actually talked to a good friend of mine, Mr. J.D. Vanderweel, who I met through doing like a stage build for Ganja White Night a couple years ago. And he is just a hardworking dude in the scene who works with artists on the management side, on the production side. And we had a really good talk with him, too. You know, we just talk about the really ins and outs and stuff of the music industry that people don't really get to hear too often about. So it was fun to get to kind of regale in those times as we don't really have them right now. But, you know, once again, everybody, thanks for listening. I'm Wes, always hanging out with my good friend Elizabeth, and we'll see you next time. Bye.